It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The enemy we have to face down is inflation. You can't overstate how much a short-term mindset dominates Westminster. The cost of living crisis is not going away. It's very real for people. We've got to focus very much on the things that will really bring back growth. The UK has certainly been a very strong supporter of Ukraine from the outset. We have to stay the course to make sure inflation falls all the way back to the 2% target. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, we'll bring you our exclusive conversation with former Labour leader Neil Kinnock. Now, Lord Kinnock, he led the opposition from 1983 for eight and a half years, facing Margaret Thatcher and then John Major across the dispatch box. Most recently, he spent 10 years in Brussels as a European commissioner. As Labour leader, he eventually moved his party away from more radical policies on disarmament and large-scale nationalisation. But he stood down as leader after the Conservative election victory in 19. 1992, which the polls had expected Labour to win. Well, he joined us in the radio studio for a discussion about the issues facing Labour now. A warm welcome to the Bloomberg Radio Studio. Hello. Thank you so much for your time. Now, of course, Lord Kinnock, you stood at the dispatch box opposite Margaret Thatcher for most of her time in government, and you led the party to a surprise fourth Labour defeat in 1992. The parallels to current politics in some people's minds are there. Keir Starmer is ahead in the polls currently. We have perhaps 18 months to go before the next general election, maybe sooner. He doesn't seem, though, to have sealed the deal with British voters. If not, why not? Well, as you remind us, we're about 18 months out from the general election. And when Keir became the leader of the Labour Party, uh, I think he determined upon three phases Hmm. because he's a very rational very highly intelligent and very uh, mature man who tends to act in that way, except on the football field, where he becomes extremely irate very quickly. But otherwise, uh, he's got this sense of calm Mm. and very balanced judgment. And so uh, at the outset, I think he was determined, first of all, to restore credibility to the Labour Party so that people could see it as dependable, constructive, patriotic. And I think that's pretty much been accomplished, though it's never a job that's finished. Uh, It's in the nature of democratic politics. 
Secondly, I think that he saw a second phase uh, about two years in as a phase dedicated to policy development that would have to run alongside party management. And I think that we're coming towards the end of that phase with increasing frequency and detail of policy announcements. And then I think he was determined from the outset to dedicate the last year or so uh, to intensive campaigning. And he's working to that plan, naturally never announced, rightly never announced, because you don't disclose your uh, strategic battle plan uh, in case the enemy might hear about it. So uh, that's the course that he's been following. And I think that in almost exact detail and with precise timing. But do you think that's that he's what got he's to, been doing? Does he have enough time, though? If you say that we're coming into the campaigning yes. phase, this means there needs to be passion, the passion of politics, not just the reasoning. Has he got Quite. time to get that across? Quite. Well, when uh, Keir is passionate uh, because he feels deeply, he can express himself very trenchantly. But you will never see Keir Starmer waving his arms around, stamping his feet, or unnecessarily raising his voice. He's not built that way. Uh, there are some of us a little more melodramatic in our approach to public communication, I'll be polite about that, uh, to whom these theatrics genuinely, but nevertheless um, characteristically, uh, are practiced. That's simply not in Keir Starmer's makeup, and I think that's extremely fortunate as it happens, because the country is looking for security and dependable progress. It's not look, looking for thrills and spills. You, you it's enough of that. You mentioned the party reforms. You spent your first years uh, as Labour leader fighting militant, fighting the hard left. Are you depressed that Keir Starmer has had to spend his time doing the same thing? Not depressed and not surprised either, because there is always an element in any party, and it's noticeable in the Labour Party, uh, that prizes power in the Labour Party more than it prizes power for the Labour Party. And those people tend to be rather self-indulgent. They tend to treat politics as something of a hobby rather than uh, a, a purpose-driven mission. Uh, we're seeing that in the Conservative Party now, as we have over the past few years. We've certainly seen it become evident in the Labour Party from time to time. And of course, in a sense, it reached a sort of zenith with the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. Uh, there were people so disgusted, so repelled by the condition of affairs and the massive injustice in society and also the corruption in politics. You can rarely say that about British politics, but that was evident at the top of the Conservative Party for an extended period, and they wanted someone to tell them there could be instantaneous change. I understand that. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. And Jeremy Corbyn tended to meet that demand, uh, hence the sort of Glas Glastonbury politics of Jeremy Corbyn's time. In the wake of that, it was vital, as I said earlier, to restore credibility and respect 
for the Labour Party and he has been doing that. So if you've got Jeremy Corbyn on the left, I, I spoke to Tony Blair recently and with the long view of history, do you think that he took the Labour Party too far to the centre with New Labour and then now Keir Starmer's landed in just about the right place? There are different times and the centre of gravity in politics tends to move around. I think that socially uh, it's unimaginably uh, to the enlightened, if you like, left by comparison when, say, I was 30 years of age, 50 years ago. Uh, economically, it's shifting now because of the sheer incompetence of the efforts to run the economy as if it was isolated, as if it could be separated from the rest of the world, and if it could be subjected to ideological touches on the tiller, which would bring it back to equilibrium. And that's not reality. So that consequently, people are now looking, I think, for ideas that are more radical and policies that will bring change, but to do it with stability and security. That is crucial. Well, but hang on. I, I mean, the argument from the Conservative Party, I suppose, now would be that that Sunak represents a very different sort of mission-driven politics, that, mm. that Hunt is also a sort of steady pair of hands. I mean, that there is an argument to be made, um, and Starmer's got to try to come up with something against that. Mm, a drunken sailor would be steady by comparison with what we've endured in this country in the age of trust and Johnson, and indeed even before that, when a lunatic fringe was seek, seeking to take control of even Theresa May's uh, party and managed to get rid of her. Uh, she was, if nothing else, steady, and we've been through these years of turmoil. So it's not difficult for uh, Mr. Sunak to give the appearance of uh, steadiness uh, and having a strategy. Unfortunately, and it is very unfortunate, I say this, Without partisanship, frankly, it's proving not to be the case, partly because Mr. Sunak hasn't got a great driving spirit other than to try and be relatively stable. Uh, he's said to be uh, a management figure, but all he's ever managed, of course, is money. He's never managed people and certainly hasn't managed people in politics who tend to be a different breed of the human race. In any case, I'm very sorry to say, but that's the reality. So you've got Mr. Hunt and Mr. Sunak, who are in a sense striving to restore a kind of stability and normality in the wake of Truss and Johnson. But most of the factors in their own party, and more widely in politics, are militant in against that which is why we need somebody who's authentically stable and serious and mature. And that brings us back to Keir Starmer. On, on economics and fiscal policy, Rachel Rees has started to set out a more interventionist uh, approach. Can the country afford that, given the fiscal constraints that we face? Well, the country's got to afford it, really, because of years, some would argue decades, of chronic underinvestment in crucial public services, but particularly also in intellectual and in physical infrastructure. Mm. This is a country which needs pretty radical and rapid modernization. 
that doesn't come but free. We can develop and exploit talents. That's our only real raw material now. But it nevertheless needs a setting, an environment in which those talents can flourish. So and that's been denied. It doesn't come free. So does that mean more borrowing or higher taxes? It means uh, basically more growth and more dependable, sustained growth. But how do you pay that, for it? That is the only thing that will generate the revenues required, both for private investment and for public investment. And so consequently, what you need is a set of strategies, not airy-fairy strategies, but immensely practical policies that can be implemented to give dependability and, and certainty to the business sector and incentives uh, to those who are striving to make a living, whether they're doing it as brain surgeons or they're sweeping the streets. But for our audience, that sounds a bit like Liz Truss, doesn't it? She wanted unfunded tax cuts paid for by growth no, that would come eventually. Unfunded tax cuts is, is just mythology. I mean, we saw how sustainable that was in, what was it, four or five weeks, no, six weeks, God help us, of trust. And everybody realized from day one that if she charged ahead, she and Quasi Quateng, with those uh, dogmatic ideological policies, it was completely divergent from the reality of the world. Whether you're thinking of the world in terms of the mixed economy or you're thinking of the terms purely in terms of the market economy, none of that was realistic, which is why, of course, uh, the Labour Party now, rightly, is committed to costed programmes and to dependable outcomes and is striving according to five practical strategic missions that have been set down. Instead of patching things by responding, you spoke of Mr. Sunak earlier um, uh, making uh, for a more interventionist state. <laughs> He's done it because there was no way other than in the middle of a COVID crisis to commit billions to supporting people's standard of living. The only alternative was to let the economy utterly implode upon itself. And no rational person could do that. So, yes, he's intervened. Uh, he's intervened by taking Labour's idea of free, freezing energy prices. That's one of the dangers of early announcements of policies, by the way. They get stolen. But, yes, he's intervened. But he's done it because there was no alternative, not out of any rational, strategic, dependable, creative plan. Okay. That's the difference. Going to the point around about business, around the Labour Party needing to create a you know solid base for business. I mean, Brexit. You were anti-Brexit. We are kind of po post the Brexit debate, frankly. No, we're not. But with you every have cost that comes in, yes, every bill, every queue, every hold-up, every disruption in the supply chain. Yeah, and we're not going to argue that point because we understand the economics yeah, and the do. data. Yes. So I'm not going to fight you on that point. The damage is there and we, and we see it. But you are also an advocate of closer ties with the EU. Yep. 
which to me screams Switzerland. It also shouts condemning the UK to years of haggling over every bit of the relationship, economic, you know, of every description. And that isn't a fantastic vision for Britain either. No, it isn't one that I would <laughs> I would advocate starting from here. And I think you and I are probably in agreement about what we'd really like to do. And it's difficult to see how full-blown growth and higher productivity can be achieved uh, in our absence from the huge single market of around about 500 million consumers and gigantic amounts of available investment, not just from Europe, but from the world that but wants Starmer to gain access to the single market. Say that but exactly. Would he do but that in a few years' so time? So what he's got to do is to establish this relationship in order incrementally to build trust. And by that means, and in sectors, this is crucial, develop new relationships with the single market and with the European Union. Now, you mentioned Switzerland. You could also mention the EFTA countries. And they've got a particular form of relationship with the EU. I negotiated, for instance, the transport treaty with Switzerland uh, as but transport really commissioner. But it's really difficult. And it isn't easy. You're absolutely right. However, however, if there is mutual advantage, and there is, it is achievable. And I'm not holding out any false hopes or dreaming of some castles in the air. The fact is, we need access to particular sectors in the single market. They would be advantaged by the restoration of easy access to markets and resources and skills in the United Kingdom. And it's on that basis, if the EU recognizes that you're serious and sustained in your approaches, that you are trustworthy, then we can get sectoral arrangements in security, in finance, in parts of productive industry, in the movement of goods between ourselves and the rest of the European continent. That is achievable, but it's got to be on the basis of verifiable and proven commitment. The reason why when various initiatives were attempted by, what's his name, Frost uh, and Johnson in trying to develop some kind of dependable and productive relationship with the European Union is that none of the countries, nor the institutions, the Council, nor the Commission, could trust that there would be a sustained, supportive attitude on this side in the government. And without that, of course, nobody's going to sign a deal. You wouldn't do it in private business. Damn it, you wouldn't do it buying a house or a car. So you're not going to do it when it comes to billions worth of trading arrangements uh, with a, cu a customer or a supplier. You mm. can't really trust. Okay. Politically, how far and how fast can Keir Starmer move on that? Well, he moved from day one, and he's got a particular opportunity, of course, uh, very early on in the lifetime of the next Labour government, and that is because there's a scheduled renegotiation of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, Johnson's deal. So it does mean 
Not that there's open season and everything can be restored and in a dream world of that kind, but a requirement on both sides to seriously attend to significant adjustments in the deal that's existed. Now, in a funny way, of course, the fact that Sunak, in a spasm of common sense, managed to arrange different uh, established relationships so far as Northern Ireland is concerned, and then came out and in the irony of the century said that there was a magical situation for the for Northern Ireland because they had this wonderful situation of being in both the single market of the EU and the single market of the United Kingdom. And I, I think that when he got back in the car and was driving to the airport, the irony must have landed on him like a ton of steel. What have I just said? I've just advocated restoration of our place in the single market. Well, nobody's doing that at the moment, but it does show what is possible through negotiation, which you call haggling. Okay, long live haggling. So speaking of <laughs> haggling and negotiations, we've had strikes going on for months and months. Yep. I wonder what you make of the negotiations going on with the unions and Labour's position on the unions. Is Labour doing enough to stand up for workers' demands for higher pay? Labour's committed to growth and it's committed to proper support of vital public services. Now, it's not going to pull the money out of the air. Everybody knows that. But in efforts to in striving in accordance with its missions to, for instance, uh, restore standards and achieve advance and modernization in the health service, there will be opportunities. There's no doubt at all about that. If people want Labour to demonstrate its solidarity with working people by going on picket lines, then they'll have to look elsewhere. But, but hang on. Because but is that Labour has no significance at all, really. I know, but real people want to understand whether their wages are going to go up or not. Yes, and of if, course. And if you're working in the NHS and you say we want to support yes. the NHS, then the nurses want to know whether 10% is something that you back or not. And Labour has, we've asked every Labour MP that we've had on at this we question. sat in that very chair. They're not going to say. And the nurses know very well that no political party in opposition is going to say we will sign the cheque. And rather than insult people with what could turn out to be an absolutely false promise, it's best to say we'll do everything that we can because we've got a fundamental belief in the viability and the future of the National Health Service. And if you look at the record, and it's extremely valid here, you will see that in 13 years of Labour government, there were no nurses' strikes or go-slows or work-to-rules. And whilst nurses, my mother was a nurse, nurses were never people earning a fortune. The fact is they had a very fulfilling task, a profession, and they could depend upon a salary that reflected their significance. That's dropped off the edge in 10 years or 12, 13 years since the Tory government came in and bust every promise by introducing uh, so-called austerity, in which time the National Health Service and other services, including vital local government services, 
have been chronically underfunded. And the result, cumulatively, is the kind of disasters we've got facing us now, not just in terms of the salary of nurses and therapists mm-hmm. and doctors, but in terms of the kit that treatment lacks now. I mean, I'll give yeah, you one, no, one figure just to prove a point. It's a very, very important figure. The number of beds in the United Kingdom per 100,000 people is 2.5. In France, it's 5.7, which is the EU average. In Germany, it's 7.6. Now, those problems, those deficiencies don't arrive overnight. They yeah. are cumulative. And that was a number that came to the fore in the pandemic, so one that we, yeah, that we understood. Lord Kinnock, on the character of the Labour Party, only a tiny fraction of the many parliamentary candidates have been selected so far for the next general election have been from working-class backgrounds. Does that matter? Well, it matters in the sense that it reflects the change in our society. I mean, when I was elected first in 1970, I was 28 years of age. I was five years out of university. And in the selection conference, in a very safe Labour seat, which I was desperate to represent and very proud to represent for 25 years, somebody asked the question, you're just out of university, um, you've, you've never had a, a job underground or in a factory, what do you know about the rough and tumble of life? And I had to say to that questioner, and this is why I think I was selected, by the way. Uh, Look, comrade, if my parents had kept me in school until I was nearly 19, and if they sustained me in university, and upon graduating, I got my degree and went up to Markham Pitt and asked the manager if I could have a start, you wouldn't be selecting me, you'd be certifying me. And the fact of the matter is, that due to the sacrifice of my parents, I got opportunities but the, but, denied to all but the previous diver- generations of my family. But the idea of diversity, and diversity of, of opinion course, and of, of course, having of course, people who've got that, course, that is surely, but you can't dismiss that. Our it's, society it's, has changed. And if uh, a shop assistant or a lorry driver or an engineer was to seek to become selected, I would say actually... If they had the required skills, and that's the point, isn't it? And the confidence, and that is an additional very, very important point, they would, the fact that they hadn't been to higher education and didn't possess a degree and had worked wherever they did from the age of 16 or 17 or 18, that would actually count in their favor. They'd be more likely to be selected. So the idea that Labour somehow left the proletariat, uh, absconded from the working class because most of its candidates are now graduates, simply says something about Britain in the 2020s, not the 1920s or even the 1950s. Okay, so you talked about how things have changed a lot. But there are, as Caroline pointed out, many parallels with when you were Labour leader. Hmm. In terms of foreign policy, if we look at Russia, if we look at China, the war in Ukraine, would you say that we're in a new Cold War? It's different from the Cold War, although we still have that inevitable shadow of mutual assured destruction. And Putin knows this, 
And because nobody can have confidence in his stability, you can only have confidence in his venality and his viciousness, uh, then there are movements of policy, commitment of troops and hardware that will not be undertaken simply cause, because everybody has to recognize it is not unthinkable or impossible that Putin should use nuclear weapons, so-called tactical or battlefield weapons, which are neither tactical nor battlefield, actually. They would create Armageddon, which would be terminal. So nobody can take that risk. And that is the characteristic that remains from the Cold War. However, the realignment of forces, the fact that nearly all of Europe now is free and that in order to belong to the European Union or NATO, you have to signify commitment to democracy and practice it. There are some doubts about, for instance, Hungary under Orban but, or to but some degree can, Poland. You have to be democratic, but you also have to commit to spending. Should Britain be spending sure. far more militarily in a new, more unstable world? Well, I think that the current level of expenditure, which is slightly in excess of 2% of GDP, uh, probably meets our commitment. The dangers... But 2% is seen as a floor now, not as a maximum. Or no, I know that. I know that's how much things can change in five years. And uh, they have changed, and Putin has changed it. The development of China has changed it. But I think that if we're going to focus on the likely sources of tension and aggression, now and in the future, we should be looking not so much at conventional armaments, but of ways of resisting um, electronic aggression in its huge variety of forms, including artificial intelligence. And that's not cheap. We're going to have to make commitments to that in ways that can't appear on a parade ground or in a march past. It's, uh, that's the reality that we're in now, and we have been there maybe for the last decade, but certainly uh, whether it's counter-terrorism or uh, neutralizing various forms of aggression from Putin's Russia, from China, and other authoritarian regimes, a greater balance of resources is going to have to be committed there. Final question, Lord Kinnock. If Keir Starmer doesn't win enough votes, what should he do if there's a hung parliament? Govern. If he's got the biggest single party, govern. Should he go um, into coalition with the Lib Dems? There won't be a coalition. Uh, the Lib Dems won't have it, and Keir Starmer certainly won't have it. No question of coalition. There's no deal that he would do with the Scottish Nationalists or needs to do with the Liberals, and I'll tell you why. Uh, now, I'm hoping and working for a majority Labour government, which I think is attainable simply because, apart from anything else, the volatility of the times in which we live. I think that there will be a significant shift in voting at the next election, and I think that that will offer real opportunity to the Labour Party. And I'm not wishful thinking. I am the fundamental realist about these things, and I've got the T-shirt to show it. But uh, in the event of him falling short of a majority, 
then other parties will readily make a confidence and supply arrangement simply because they are not going to vote to topple a government which has just ended 14 years of particularly appalling conservative rule against which those parties are absolutely pledged to fight. So uh, I'm not saying it's not a problem. God damn it, I lived through a minority government in the 1970s. And the fact that Parliament used to sit for 20 hours a day. And that wasn't comfortable. It meant for dislocations in family life and all kinds of things, tiredness, MPs dying, God knows what else. So it's a pretty hideous place to be. But the country can still have transparent, accountable, dependable, rational government in those circumstances. And with Keir Starmer and the kind of team that he's got around him, that's what you'll get. Interesting times ahead. Lord Kinnock, Neil Kinnock, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. So that was Lord Kinnock, the former Labour leader. Gone is the fiery hair of the once youngest Labour leader, but it was just so interesting to hear from such a towering figure in the Labour Party, wasn't it? I thought it was really interesting that he made the distinction that both Labour and the Conservatives seem to be more activist, more interventionist, but for the Tories, he says it's out of necessity like in the pandemic, and actually the Conservatives have been stealing Labour's clothes. Yeah, fascinating to get the perspective of such a towering giant in the the Labour Party. They say that history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it rhymes. And there are so many parallels with the 1980s, not just what Labour would do in the event of a hung parliament, uh, but also the industrial unrest we're facing at the moment, uh, and also his fight with the hard left. Just like Keir Starmer, he spent so much of his leadership facing down militant uh, and the hard left. So really interesting to hear what he had to say on that. Yeah, he talks about the three phases for Keir Starmer's strategy, restoring credibility, policy development, and then intensive campaigning. But I had to wonder, when's the third? going to begin when an election could come at any moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was uh, a really interesting conversation. You know, Labour man through and through, Neil Kinnock and his support, absolutely his weight behind Keir Starmer uh, to win in the next general election if and when it comes in the next 18 months. That's it from us for today. If you did like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcott and our audio engineer was Murray Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepker. We'll be back with more next week. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.